Well, good morning, First Family. Thank you, Josh and the worship team. It really is good seeing everyone. It's good to be back with you. Thank you for your prayers. While I was in South Asia last week, and believe it or not, I bring you greetings from a church in a village that is exactly the same age as you are, as we are. It was New Life Church. They were communicating through a translator. They started in the summer of 04. And when they told me that, I was like, oh, that's when we started in some ways. We didn't launch till September, but we were meeting in some homes. Anyway, and so they were kind of asking about that, and I was telling them about our church, and they were telling me about their church. And so I told them I'd, bring you, I'd tell you hello from a sister church somewhere near Delhi. And so I'm doing that this morning, a church about the same age as you are. Um, and they would say that our warehouse is the Taj Mahal, by the way. Um, so next time you tend to complain, come with me to South Asia, and you won't complain anymore about where we meet, I'm telling you. You'll be totally pleased. But it was a good trip. I'm so thankful that I got to go and for your belief in uh, what's going on across the globe and how we can find out more and just be a part of that and see where God might lead us. So thank you. Um, if you're a guest today, can I mention just one thing to you? I know all of you received a worship folder when you came in. Uh, read through that, check it out. It's the best way to stay in touch, as well as our website, firstfamily.church. It's just that simple. Uh, but if you're a newcomer, a new uh, attender, a guest, uh, today we begin another round of Newcomer's Lighthouse. It's the best first step if you're just kind of checking out First Family. And I just want to encourage you. Uh, I meet there with the Fortenberries. They host at their house. If you'd like to go today, uh, we've got some signed up. But if you want to make sure you attend, if you kind of want to take that first step, find out more. It's not a sales pitch. It's not a requirement for membership. It's just an honest environment to ask questions and learn more. Uh, there's a white card in the back of the chair in front of you. Just take that card, put your name, maybe contact. I'll get a hold of you as soon as the church is over. Or come see me afterwards. One of our elders will be here as well, or our prayer team. And say, Mr. Newcomers, and we'll get you the right person, get some information, tell you where the house is. And be a good way to kind of start off on the right foot today, okay? Just be aware of that. Otherwise, just read through the worship folder, check our website, and stay in touch and involved that way, okay? Well, we got home Tuesday, and of course, uh, couldn't wait to see Julie again, and then the kids, and so forth, the grandkids. Uh, but once we saw those guys, I wanted some time alone with Julie, obviously, to kind of talk to her and just kind of catch up. So we sat down that evening to watch a movie, to talk. We can do both at the same time, believe it or not. And so um, we watched this movie called The Little Boy. Who here has seen The Little Boy? Anyone? Great movie, by the way. Great movie. Family friendly. Uh, by the first 12 to 15 minutes, I'm already crying. Julie's tearing up. And that shouldn't come as a surprise. I cry at McDonald's Christmas commercials, all right? So it's not like that big a deal. But I was like, man, this is touching. Halfway through, I'm crying. The end, I'm weeping. And we get done. I mean, Julie and I are both like, wow, that's, that's, that tugs your heart. It wrenches your emotions. Now, I wouldn't trust the movie for theology. It's not why I watch movies anyway. But it's just a good, friendly movie, and, and it was just it was delightful. In the end of the movie, the little boy is sitting with his unexpected friend on this dock, this pier-like structure. And I can't explain the whole thing. Just trust me on how this works. He's explaining to his friend, the little boy, is how that none of his actions, all the things that he did, all these outward manifestations that were designed to accomplish a goal, it seemed like they didn't work, and he was frustrated. He was hurt. And his unexpected friend says to him, 
all the love you had for your dad was contained in that list. So the moment he says that, I'm thinking, now watch this. I'm like, that's exactly what it's like in the Christian life. There are things we do on the outside. outside. There are lists that we make of things that we do for God. There are works, right? There are actions. But all of those are simply a reflection of all the love we have inside of us that God has put there by His grace and His gospel. And suddenly I thought, this is the perfect opener for Sunday's message. The story of the little boy and how all of his actions really came from a heart that was in love with Christ. It's the perfect blend of what we've been looking at lately called faith and works. And today, we're going to take a little more intensive look at this relationship of faith and love. Or you might could use the phrase inside and outside or even, watch this, love and lists. All right? We're going to do this by looking at a character in the book of James that he mentions. It's in chapter 2. The character is Abraham. So why don't you find that, would you? James 2. Put your finger on verses 21 and 23. And while you're doing that, just a reminder that the God who wrote this Bible has revealed to us one overarching passion, and that is that His glory be made known among the nations. And it's our joy at First Family to make His passion our mission. James 2, those two verses that bring out Abraham's name, are you there yet? All right, excellent. We're going to read these three verses. Then we're going to jump to Genesis and kind of see the stories they represent. We'll kind of talk about the stories somewhat briefly. They're not hard to understand, but they would maybe need a little unpacking. I'll take a couple of questions at that point. And then I want to leave you with a warning because uh, I think it's very imperative that you not leave here this morning with the wrong foundation, especially in regards to this topic. So let's dive in here. This is a week in which we're not going to work through a selected portion of James. This is what we call a timeout week in which we're going to dive further into a topic that James brings up. Carlos expounded the text for you last week, uh, verses 14 through 26. I want to select from this passage a name that James uses to talk about the cooperative relationship of faith and works. And the name is Abraham. He's mentioned twice, verses 21 and then 23. Here's what these verses say to us. I'll just read the three verses. They are in the middle of a contextual paragraph, so listen to last week's message to get the full impact of that. I just want to draw these three verses to your attention, the two names, or the one name mentioned twice. Verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? The rhetorical question there is demanding a yes answer. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, here it is the second time, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Now, the first thing I want to answer is this. Why Abraham? Before we go to Genesis and see these two references, why Abraham? I think the answer is more obvious than you want to maybe or I want to admit. Do you recall in our very opening week, that was seven weeks ago, our very opening week, we mentioned that James was a very uh, devout Jew, one of the last to actually believe in Christ. 
But as he kind of transitioned, we'll call it, from Judaism to Christianity, those were some struggles and some steps that he, he took by the Spirit's power, no doubt. But it was, a, it was a leap for him in some ways that maybe was harder than others. He eventually began to pastor the church in Jerusalem, one of the key leaders there. And so he was responsible for a number of deeply, um, uh, of Jewish believers that had a lot of deeply held beliefs about Judaism. So he was responsible to shepherd them through that. In other words, James and the folks in this book, which chapter 1 calls the 12 tribes scattered from persecution, they were very, very Jewish. And so this, this belief that Christ fulfilled all that God had said, all of the Old Testament, and He was the Messiah, was something that they were believing and holding on to, but it perhaps was harder than perhaps you. Coming from a steep Jewish background, they just had to really kind of, uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a harder step, let's say, in some ways. God gave them faith. They did, they did it well. But if you're talking to people rooted in Judaism and showing them ways that there needs to be adjustments, who better to appeal to than the father of your nation? Are you with me? I mean, there, there is no greater Jew in a Jew's mind than Abraham. And if James can show here to these 12 tribes scattered, listen, this is exactly how Abraham lived. Man, this is an automatic win for James. Does that make sense? So, so here's why he chooses Abraham. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a hero to his audience. And in light of that, he mentions two stories from Abraham's life. The first one in verse 21 is referenced in Genesis 22. The second one in verse 23 references Genesis 15. And instead of taking them in this order, let's just switch them around and take them in the chronological order that they come in Genesis. Let's start in Genesis 15, which is the reference of verse 23, and then we'll go to Genesis 22, which is the reference of verse 21. You there? So let's go to Genesis for a few moments. Look, first of all, at Genesis 15, the first six verses in which James references this story as a, watch this now, as an indication of the faith side of the equation. He's showing how faith and works cooperate, remember? Here's a story that talks about the faith aspect of that equation. Look what he relates to us, Genesis 15, 1 through 6. I'll just simply relate to you the first three or four verses in which Abraham has already followed God, Yahweh. He has left his father's homeland. He's left the idolatrous, moon-worshiping environment of his dad, He has been brought out by God's sovereign grace and election. He's following the Lord. And yet there is this sense of doubt that the promises God made in Genesis 12, that an offspring would be there and all the nations blessed and a a land, all these things, God, is that really going to happen? It's been about 10 years since Genesis 12. And Abraham in 15 asks some honest questions like, hey, you know, I don't really have any offspring yet. The only one I've got is this servant from Damascus. His name's Eliezer. So is this what you have in mind, God? Is he going to take over my estate? Is he the one through whom the blessings will come? And God answers him, beginning in verse, I believe it is verse 4, Genesis 15. It says that God came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look towards heaven, Abraham, and number the stars if you're able to number them. And by the way, obviously Abraham, Abraham couldn't. Then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. 
And on the heels of these words, watch Abraham's reaction, his response. And he, so let's say it with me, believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham's continuing belief, God valued as righteous. He reckoned, considered Abraham justified. Now, a couple of things about this text. This is not difficult to understand. It's simply an interesting, it's simply a, a, an incident in which Abraham responded to a promise God made by believing. You don't find really anything else Abraham did in this chapter. In fact, let me just further cement that thought. This chapter is actually the ratification of the Abrahamic covenant. And if you read the rest of the chapter, Abraham um, basically falls to sleep, and in the covenant, instead of a two-party interaction, God does all of the treaty-making. He does all of the covenant-making, every bit of it. All Abraham did, to be, in a factual, textual way, was just believe that what God said, he would do. He believed. This is really the, the essence of faith. It's internal confidence that... Despite what I see on the outside, I'm confident God will keep His word. He'll keep His promise. The word believe here, the Hebrew word believe, this is a very interesting uh, tidbit of information. The, The source of it, the root of it, supplies what we need for our word, amen. Did you know that? Now, you won't say it like a Jew, which probably has some kind of hacking sound to it, wouldn't it? But the root of that word over centuries has become the basis for our word, amen. You know what Abraham did in Genesis 15? When God said, Abraham, it's not Eliezer. I've got an offspring plan for you. Look up to the heavens. I've got this. Abraham said, amen, God. That's what he did. Faith is the ability to hear what God says and say, Amen. The future may not seem to be working out that way. The surroundings, the past, people, finances. You may think, wow, that's not what it looks like. But faith looks at the promises of God and with confidence says, Amen to what God said. Furthermore, Some look at this story as the moment Abraham was saved. Now, if you're in that camp and you're here, this is not a situation where I want to take you on and come to blows with you, all right? In fact, let me just humbly say to you, you you may be right. I don't see that this way for a textual language reason. Can I explain uh, my angle and not give you a chance to explain yours? The word believe is an interesting word because when you see this, you may think, oh, he believed the Lord and he was credited as righteousness. That sounds like when he just got saved, justification. But yet we know in Genesis 12, God called Abraham by his own grace, was the initiator and called him out of her, and Abraham just followed. He left. He left idolatry and embraced Yahweh. The word believed in 15.6, actually the syntax of this Hebrew verb is such that it, it seems to say that Abraham believed, but it was based on a previous action. In other words, you would be safe to say Abraham continued to believe God. And because he did, the Lord valued, evaluated, credited, reckoned, considered what he, his belief as righteous. In other words, 
there wasn't a, there wasn't a stop in Abraham's faith. He didn't come to a pause and say, oh, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm following God, but now I'm not, now I am. This is a continuation of what I think began in Genesis 12. It's just a, a, a clearer, perhaps, way for God to express the, the, the value, the, 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 um, the worth of his faith. In fact, I love the poetic use of the word count here. This is just something kind of incidental. You know, God told Abraham to, to number the stars, to count the stars. It's the same word used in Genesis 13 when he said the same thing again, go count the stars. That's the same word God uses about Abraham. He said, Abraham, you count the stars. You number the sands. And as Abraham did and realized it caused him to believe God, then God said, by the way, I count that belief as faith, as righteousness. It's kind of an interesting way to use the same word, talking about both. My point is this. God seems to have initiated the relationship in 12. Abraham responded, and God continues to initiate, even in this covenant, and ratifies his relationship. I would almost say this. This may be, and I don't use our vernacular, this would probably, in my mind, be more of that place where Abraham's assurance grows deeper as opposed to his initial justification. Now, some would disagree, and they may be right. There's good scholars on both sides. That's kind of how I see it. I just want to make sure we at least address that and give you some opportunity to think through it. Regardless of where you land on that, we would agree on this. This is a moment in which Abraham verbalizes, solidifies internal confidence in a promise made by God. Amen? Amen. That's what you should say. Amen. That's right. Remember, that's, that's the word for believe in his text, right? So I would say let's just keep amening God. Here's the first story, a confidence in the promise of God. Let's look over to Genesis 22 for a moment, can we? Here's the second story referenced in James. This is 30 years later. So we're actually 40 years removed from Genesis 12. Here we are in Genesis 22. I'm going to focus on 15 through 18, and then we'll take a few questions, so feel free to text them in if you need to. But the story is the one where Abraham is asked, he's tested by God, via sacrificing his son. Now, let me just clearly say, God did not want Abraham to kill his son. God wasn't after Abraham's son. God was after Abraham's trust. All right? The avenue was by testing this relationship. But some would say, well, I guess God okays child sacrifice. Not on your life. No pun intended there, all right? Not in any way is God suddenly changed like, well, I guess he was okay with men giving up their sons, but now he's not. No, God has never been good with taking life in this manner. He's not good with child sacrifice. In fact, that very element is one of the reasons God brought such severe judgment on Judah and Israel. This is not a story to teach us about sacrificing of children. It's a story that shows us how, how seriously Uh, God wants to make sure that your heart and your trust is His. Let me push pause there and say this to you. God's not after certain things in your life either. The things that maybe are going to compete, take you off His promises, divert your attention, distract you. He's not after those. It's not like God's in need of your job or your relationship with your kids or your wife or your car or whatever 
thing or idol is possibly going to take your trust away and make you count on that instead of God. God's not after that. He's in need of nothing, amen? He's a transcendent, completely self-sufficient God. But He loves us enough to know that often the testing that He puts us through is to show us and others that our hearts are completely His. So just understand, first of all, God's not after a man's boy here. He's after a man's trust. He does that in a very intense way, though. They walk up the mountain. Abraham's got the wood. He and his son Isaac have a conversation. It had to be intense. It had to be odd. And yet there seems to be in the text this ambiance of a willingness to just do what God said. They get to the top of the mountain. Isaac gets on the altar. However they were to strap someone on, lay them. I don't know if he was uh, tied or if he laid willing. We don't know. But there doesn't seem to be a, a forceful struggle Abraham goes to plunge the knife into his son's chest. An angel stops his hand and proves that God wasn't after his son's life. He was after Abraham's trust. And this one action, this one story, 40 years after Genesis 12, is the story that cements Abraham's faith in God. In fact, look what he says in 15 through 18 about this story. You'll see in verse 14, they named it, The Lord Will Provide. And so God did. A ram was taken out of the bushes. They sacrificed the ram instead of the son. And the angel of the Lord, in verse 15, called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. And many believe the angel is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, what would make Abraham obey in such an intense situation? It had to be something that Hebrews references. Chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. You can turn there on your own and look if you like. But here's what I think Abraham's thinking while he's trekking up this mountain. Maybe he shared it with Isaac. But I think his confidence in God's promise, Genesis 15, Genesis 12, was so deeply ingrained after 30 to 40 years that he, he just knew that if this were to be what God would actually call him to do, then he would raise his son from the dead as well. Hebrews seems to say that, by the way. Chapter 11. That Abraham had such deep confidence that he, he assumed if Isaac's going to die, there must be some way God's going to raise him because God said, here's your offspring. Now that's some deep faith, isn't it? That's kind of what's going on in Abraham's mind. And so he just obeys in an incredible way based on a promise that God had given him. This is the works side of that equation. Remember how Genesis 15 shows the faith side? Here's the works aspect of this equation. Abraham doing some things. The the more specific word would be offer. So in Genesis 15, Abraham believes. In Genesis 22... Abraham offers faith, works, inside, outside, love, list. So don't hear those as negative. Hear them as cooperating. This side, the works, the outside, the lists, those things flow out of the inside, the faith, the love. But they do work together 
to vindicate one another, to justify, as James would say, the existence of both. Now, I want to address a phrase in here. We don't like to skip over things, uh, and I think it's important, as you know, that how I see this phrase. In these verses, 15 through 18, which is kind of a summation of the story about God's response to it, you have a phrase mentioned twice that's a, that's a doozy, all right? It's in verse 16, because you have done this. And then it's in verse 18, because you have obeyed my voice. Now, that's a doozy, isn't it? Because it, it would appear that God then took action because of Abraham's work. Because you obeyed, I want to keep my promise. Because you obeyed, I will now do this. But if you read the textual story, God has always been the initiator, true? Genesis 12, Genesis 15, he ratifies the covenant without any help from Abraham. It's always God's sovereign grace and power that's accomplishing and moving the mission along. So now why is it suddenly that because Abraham did this, what's the point of that? I want to tell you how, how I see this phrase. It doesn't mean that obedience doesn't matter, but I think we have to understand which direction, at least in Abraham's case, in which direction does obedience have its greatest effect? Listen very carefully. Your obedience has its greatest effect horizontally. What do you mean, Todd? Look in the text. The bulk of the comments between the two phrases, because you have done this and because you have done this, they're kind of like bookends. The bulk of the comments are about the offspring. Do you see that? Your son, your offspring, your offspring, your, and then how they'll overcome the enemies, and then the offspring, and then the nations, the earth be blessed. Here's what I think is happening. God saw Abraham's obedience and knew that because he had obeyed, there would be an impact horizontally to other people that otherwise might not have been experienced. Would God have kept his promise and in some way been faithful? Yes. But would there have been the, the impact? Who knows? Good question. I tend to think this is more about the impact his obedience had to others than the leverage it played upon God. God is always the initiator. We're always the responder. I think we're showing here, man, there have been, there's an unlimited, innumerable, innumerable amount of, of offspring, so to speak, because of Abraham's obedience. In fact, I think this is one of the things that Paul goes to in Romans chapter 4, Galatians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 2, I believe it is, in which he talks about how there is now not just one uh, Jewish body, Neither is there this one Gentile body. Neither are there two bodies trying to live together. He says in Ephesians, there is one new man in Christ. It's not Jew or Gentile. It's the fact that we all together are Christian. We're Christ. And and I think Paul in those passages makes the point that, you know what, Abraham's obedience, he's mentioned in those passages, had an effect that even today we feel hallelujah amen i'm i'll just be really frank with you i'm glad abraham obeyed you know why because when god sought me out as a 14 year old redheaded teenager and said i've chosen you i'm going to save you 
gave me the faith to respond to his incredible message that Christ came, was buried and rose again, died in my place and paid my debt. When he enabled me to believe and then credited me as righteous, when all of that happened, I became a son of Abraham. Did you know that? You became a daughter of Abraham when you became a Christian. Aren't you glad Abraham obeyed? I am. And so I think what we have here is, is an, uh, the right view of obedience, that yes, it matters, but it matters more to those around you in one sense and the effect of it. Because our obedience doesn't leverage God. It doesn't put God in the corner. You know, when, when, when he called and tested Abraham in Genesis 22, do you think God's in heaven thinking, man, I hope Abraham obeys. Hope I can stop that knife in time. Hope the angel and I are communicating. Hope we didn't have any kind of you know, lack of cell coverage or anything. Or, I mean, you think God's worried that Abraham's not going to pass the test? No way. This was so odd. The test wasn't to say, oh, for, for God to kind of relax. Like, whew, I guess Abraham's good to go. I was a little worried there. The test was for Abraham's benefit and for all those after him. So because he obeyed, the effect horizontally is to his offspring and to all those around him, the nations. So your obedience matters, and God does call for it. But your obedience, I think this passage here, it's not so that God will finally do something or that God's worried and you can leverage him and you can you know, pry him to move. It's much like Esther. You remember Esther? She was put in a specific place for a specific reason. And I believe her uncle it was, Mordecai, who said to her, who knows, this may be the very reason you were born. Now, that's some high pressure. Can we all agree to that? I mean, you're in a situation, and the, the implication is if you don't act in this way, if you don't go into the king and speak up for your people, I mean, this is why you were born. It's all coming down to this moment, Esther. I mean, that's, that's a lot of like, uh, wow, everything is now about. And yet, he follows that up with this comment. But don't think that if you don't do it, God won't bring deliverance from someone else. It's like, you're important, but you're not indispensable. <laughs> it's kind of the point. So does Abraham's obedience matter? By all means. But does it corner or leverage God or put God in a threatened position? Not at all. Are these hard things to balance and think through? Yes. But I don't want to skip over these phrases without at least an honest shot at what, how I view them. I think it speaks more to the horizontal effect of obedience. And you should not underestimate or undervalue the horizontal effect of your obedience. It... If you disobey, I'm just going to spit this out here. If you disobey, it's not going to corner God. He's not going to feel threatened or a leg down, but there are people around you who will potentially suffer, miss out on a blessing. Your obedience matters, especially horizontally. Make sense? So here we have God's promise over here, Abraham's actions. Here you have Abraham's internal confidence in that promise. Here you have Abraham's external actions because of that promise. Faith and works. Inside, outside. Love and lists. Okay? Now go back to James for a moment. Let me show you something I think is kind of intriguing because when you see that... The question is, okay, why did he mention that? He talked about faith and works. He mentioned Abraham, also Rahab, which, by the way, we could mention the same thing. God promised that he would save her. 
If she believed, so she did. They marched around the wall. Only her house was not destroyed and her family. So same kind of example, an action rooted in a promise. But you look at this, you say, okay, what's the point? Why is he talking about these examples, especially Abraham? It's because, if you recall, in the previous parts of the chapter, he's asking for them to trust God that, they, that, that they're not going to um, look at people with partiality and think, well, the rich person can meet my needs, so I'll trust them instead of God. They're not going to avoid working with the vulnerable of society, whether it's those in the church or those outside, orphans, widows. In other words, he's calling on them, watch this, to show what they know God has promised by how they live, and even the small things, the things that wouldn't be quite as big in their mind as offering up your son. I think the logic is this. If Abraham could trust God in something as big as offering his son, you can trust the Lord in how you view people, how you take care of widows, how you take care of orphans. Does that kind of resonate, guys? That's how all this kind of fits together. James is asking them to make sure that what they believe, what they know God has said, his promises, affect how they obey externally. So I was thinking through that this week. Like, what are things that God has promised us in his word that require action? I kept this list with me all week. I've been writing on it, typing on it, as I thought of things. I got a few I want to bring to your attention. Some of them you'll be like, oh, we knew you'd bring that up. All pastors do. Some of them you might be surprised, though. Here's the one that I'll just kind of get off, uh, off all of our minds. It's one you expect. But let's just talk about giving for a moment, all right? You can let out a big sigh like, okay, we knew you'd get there, right? Uh, the truth is, Philippians 4.19, we love this promise. My God will supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I mean, I've seen that in books about God's promises, on plaques, I've heard it on radio shows. We love that, don't we? Because God promises to take care of our needs. And the church says what? Amen. And yet that verse is in the context of a sacrificial, generous church who was giving to Paul on more than one occasion to help with the famine in Jerusalem. Do you know that God's promises to meet our needs cause us to be sacrificial and generous? And the church said, so we love the promise, but the promise has attached to it a sense of obedience. Like, man, like, well, if God's promised to meet all my needs, then hey, my hands are open, man. Yeah, let's see what we can do. I'll share resources, time, stuff, my soul. Yeah, let's just be open-handed with the gospel and with our belongings. Because after all, God's got my back. Remember the disciples? He said, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. Every man needs these things, he said. But you take care of my business, Matthew 6, 33, I'll take care of yours. A promise has attached to it some kind of action. Okay, since God has said this, I will do this. Here's one that might not be quite as obedient, um, excuse me, obvious. Um, obedience by children. We've got several in here. Now, here's what Paul used in Ephesians 6, hearkening back to the law. He says that children obey your parents, and all the parents there said what? You're the loudest you've been all day, I'm telling you. It's pretty good there. Children obey your parents. 
uh, that it will go well with you. Now, what does that mean? It means that by and large, an obedient lifestyle is a really good idea. The church said, I mean, let's just be honest. When, when you're obeying your parents, there's a sense of protection, um, governance, um, things that they just run better because you have those arms around you. Thus, Paul would say, obey because God has promised. That's the generally, that's the, that's the best road to travel. Obedience brings blessing. And we see this even in the Mosaic Law, how that, that conditional covenant, blessings and cursings, God's point was, as you obey me, that's your best opportunity for safety and protection. So what should a kid do in light of God's promises that the, the most dangerous road is the one of rebellion and disobedience, the most protected road is the one of obedience. What should children do? The action is, say it with me, obey your parents. It's not rocket science. The actions are attached to a promise. I wrote one more down, or several, but I'll just mention one or two more. I was thinking about my trip to India and um, Nepal last week. And God doesn't call all of us to the same places in the same ways. I get that, Okay. But God would have all of us have a heart like his, which is that there be disciples of all nations. I was thinking through, okay, in light of the Great Commission that God promised to be with us till the end of the age, what will I now do to make disciples of all nations? It's a fair question, isn't it? We can't say nothing. God has promised to be with us. So if he leads you across the street to talk to your neighbor that you've not met yet, and you're nervous, you're not a talkative person, then do that. God will be with you. Or if he leads you across the world or down under, he will be with you. Amen? The point is, his promise to be with us empowers our efforts at making disciples, regardless of where we go. Two weeks ago, I was shoveling snow in my driveway. And it's easy for me to go halfway across the world, just so you all know. I have no problem with that. I would do that every month if I could. It's hard for me to cross the street. And to that, the church said, what? (laughs) Maybe you can relate. So I'm shoveling my driveway, and my neighbor across the street comes out, and she begins to shovel hers. Um, She's kind of a shorter lady. She's got her son with her, and he's not much taller than the shovel. He's trying to push it along. It's kind of a, I'm not doing a halfway job, but I'm kind of particular in things. I like order, and, and so I'm thinking, I need to go help her shovel that. It's looking kind of like, you know, and <laughs> my mind's straight, you know, and, and so I thought, but I don't, I don't want to go help her. She's probably, apparently her husband's maybe at work or something, and I don't want to be weird, or I've never met her yet in several months, and she's moved in new, and so I started feeling guilty, but then that kind of, like, well, I don't want to embarrass her now, and I'm in a hurry with my own driveway, but I just said, you know what, I'm just going to go over there and talk to her. So I took my shovel, and I go over, I said, hi, I'm Todd, and she was uh, foreign, she was Asian. And I said, I know we've not met yet, but I noticed you kind of dressed up, and you're shoveling, let me shovel it for you, you can go where you got to go, and she oh, that'd be great. And so we started talking a little bit, you know, and uh, her son was there, and I said, well, he can stay and help me. So I'm thinking that's a good move to teach, but I'm thinking, man, he's not doing a very good job, so it's not going to work out well, you know. I'm pretty normal, okay, and human like you guys, I'm telling you, in a lot of ways. But I said, yeah, let him stay. He can help me. 
So she stays too because she doesn't know me from Adam. I'm a stranger leaving her son out there. She's like, well, I'll just stay and watch and hang out, you know. So she does and we talk. Um, I'm sure she probably got feeling really awkward at some point because I just talked a bunch. And she kept saying, well, you know, um, it just seemed like maybe she thought I was like coming on in a weird way to be frank with you, okay? So I said, oh, my wife's just across the street. If you need anything, let us both know and... Uh, we have four children, and two of them are grown and out of the house, and just, you know, they come over a lot, and just, so we're talking, and she goes, well, I'm, I've only been here in Des Moines for X amount of years, and I said, oh, said, we're, she goes, we're looking for somebody to, to, you know, like be friends with our child, we're, we're just having a hard time finding people his age, so I said, well, I know a great place with a lot of neat people who have kids, you know, come to find out, though, she was uh, a Buddhist, from Asia, been here a certain amount of years, and she goes to a temple down in Des Moines. And this is not to, um, if you're here and you're, you know, you're seeking or you're in a different, different kind of religion, we do have an exclusive view of the gospel. We think there's one way to heaven, but we have respect for people. And so this, don't take this as a, as a demeaning kind of comment, but I, I heard that and I thought, oh. So I invited her sometime, you know, and said, well, if you ever want to come, we'd love to have you. I said, you'd find it very friendly and non-pressuring, at least I think so. And I said, I just come by. Well, we talked some more. I uh, said goodbye. I finished up her driveway. She left. I went home and I told Julie, I said, you know, it's amazing. I have a harder time doing that than I do going to India. Now, maybe I'm the only guy in that boat. But man, I, my palms were sweating. My voice was getting scratchy. My mouth was getting dry. And I just went about 100 feet. <laughs> but God had opened that door to someone from a different nation, different ethnicity, who needs the gospel. And I remember that night just praying, Lord, man, my heart beats for the globe. I want a heart like yours desperately that people from every nation would come to faith, but I would hate to, to have an eye on India while my neighbors go to hell. Does that make sense? So God's command, His promise to be with me calls out an action. And sometimes that action doesn't mean that you go across the world. It means you go across the street. Now, it may mean that God's called you on a trip this summer. It may mean He's put you somewhere uh, you know, to go with a group. That's great. Are you going to do that? God's promised to be with you in the job of making disciples. So what are we waiting on? Amen, church? So, so whatever you choose, whatever promise in God's Word you hold on to, there's a command I believe, that results from that. This is what Abraham shows us, that internal confidence in God, faith, is attached to external actions for God. Works. And when both of these are working together, then watch this. That's saving faith at work. That's a working man's faith. Amen? So let's read our simple sentence that kind of ties all this together. From the two verses in James and the two stories in Genesis, here's how I'd sum all this up. Read with me, would you? Saving faith is at work when our confidence in God's promises results in obedience to His commands. Let's do it again, together with passion. Saving faith is at work when our confidence in God's promises results in obedience to His commands. I want to give you one more warning. We'll leave that on the screen for a little bit. I'll give you one warning before I close. But first, are there any questions that may have been texted? Let's take two questions. I'll see if I can do these somewhat briefly. 
Kids seem to be a lot of parents as idols in today's culture. Are we putting our kids in a place of danger by communicating to God that they are more important than him? There's going to be some different opinions, but I will answer that from my personal opinion point of view. Yes, your kids in our culture could easily become an idol if you're not careful. The safest place for your children and you is right in the center, the smack dab middle of God's will. And obedience to God is the best avenue for you and your children. So there's probably a lot to that question, and I'm sure each answer has individual nuances and ambiances. But family-friendly and family-first should never equate to family idolatry. I don't want to camp out there like I'm sensing I should, so I won't. Let's go to the next question. What if it is obedience towards something that your parents say is contrary to that which is good, like God's will or word? Does that produce blessing? Yes, it does in your life. God's big enough to see your heart of submission. And again, there's some nuances and nuances here that's going to be weird but without knowing for sure what they're asking you to do, that may not be good, okay? But by and large, God sees the umbrella of authority, that structure that's in place, and yes, He will make sure, uh, as far as your life goes, that's not going to be a a problem in your life in that sense, okay? Now, the truth is, those are very rare. This is what we do in America. We take extreme cases... We ask about them to try to see if we can trip someone up, or, and I'm not saying they're doing that, but to see if we can make a belief out of rare cases. By and large, that's rarely going to happen. I don't know of any parent that has asked their kid to do something harmful or, or terrible. In fact, I only know of one parent that refused to let their kid come to church. Do you know that? I've been a youth pastor 20-plus years, been a pastor here for over 11, in ministry for well over 25. I've only known one parent who ever said, You cannot go to church. And I told that youngster, you obey your parents. And God will honor you and bless you for that in the long run. Does that make sense? So when you hear that, your mind may run to extremes like, oh, what if his parents said you're going to murder somebody? That's not even the... We're not talking about that, okay? So don't let the extremes seem to form the general principle. I'm just saying, generally speaking, God's bigger than these situations. All right? These are good questions. They may have some different opinions. If you have some more conversation, let me know. We can talk about them. Uh, other ones are texted. I'll try to answer them this week in my blog. Now, here's the warning I want to give you, and we'll wrap this up. In the middle of a faith and works emphasis, which we are for at least two weeks, maybe three, we've been talking about this, this combination, this cooperative relationship. The tendency might be to say, man, I'm going to double down. I'm going to really white-knuckle this, and I'm going to show that, man, I can, I can live out my theology. I can flesh out my faith. The problem with that is if we're not careful, it will begin to undermine our faith. It becomes proud, very fleshly. We almost start thinking in terms of self-salvation. And that's a dangerous road because there are no good works that come from anything other than the good ground of the gospel. All right? Any works that come from things other than the gospel are simply works of pride to make ourselves look better, to impress people, to try to make sure that we stamp, you know, we're good enough on our backs. But when the gospel settles in, that through Christ, 
we have been accepted in the beloved, that every bit of our sin debt has been paid for. And all God asks is belief. That begins to produce in us a fruit known as good works, which God has ordained before the foundation of the world that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2. But those are all fruit from faith, not fruit for faith. It has to be in this order. And so I just want to encourage you, stay tethered to the cross. Stay entrenched in the gospel that Jesus Christ found you when you were a wicked sinner, drew you to himself, saved you by his sovereign and, 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 and powerful grace, and has now instilled in you this incredible desire to live out your love for him, yes, through a list of works. You're not strapping that list on someone else's back necessarily, but you see this opportunity for fruit, for, for, for action, as a great way to express your love for God. And every one of his promises, man, there's a command that follows. And because you so deeply believe God will keep his word, I will do everything he says. That's what we're talking about, guys. It's got to go in that order and it's got to stay tethered in that manner. I think this is why. I think this is why Hebrews 11 ends with Jesus. You say, Todd, Hebrews 11 ends with Jesus. That's Hebrews 12. I know, it's a bad chapter break. Hebrews 11 is all about people who lived out their faith, right? We call it the hall of faith. I think Chris is right. He mentioned a few weeks ago, it should be called the hall of works. It's really a chapter of people who by faith, yes, had internal confidence in God's promise, but then they really lived out their faith. Every character in Hebrews 11 is attached to an action verb. Do you know that? Every single one of them. Check it out. Noah built. Abraham left. Joshua conquered. Gideon slew. I mean, you could name the characters. But they had an internal confidence in God's promise. It led to an action verb kind of lifestyle. But watch this. He ends actually with Jesus in Hebrews 12 as the final and ultimate one of those characters. It's a bad chapter break. It really is. Because he's the, he's the one that consummates all the others. He's the one who followed perfectly, obeyed all the way to the cross, and because Jesus did what he did, we now can do what he calls us to do. So all of our root for the fruit is found in the work of Jesus. And do the other characters? Are the examples? Yes, but none of them provide the means that Jesus did. He only followed all the way to the cross, gave his life, God's wrath was satisfied, and now justification, adoption, sanctification, all occurs because of Christ. That's why only to Jesus does the writer of Hebrews say, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Amen? So as you think about what you're to do now in light of your faith, what works will come out of your life this week because of the promises that God has made to you? Just keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't let self-confidence creep in. Don't let pride work its way in. Realize were it not for the gospel, all that we do would still be considered a pile of filthy rags. And it's because of Jesus that we can even engage in any kind of good works. When he empowers that, as we look to him, guess what? Then all those good works, man, they have a horizontal effect that can impact and bless many people. May we pursue a life of good works this week. Let's pray.
Lord, I thank you so much for this morning and the word. I thank you for the tenderness of our people. And Lord, I admit this is not an easy thing to balance. I don't want to overplay one or the other. I instead want to bring both to our people with this request that they look at both knowing that Jesus has done them perfectly and that we'll find our motivation, we'll find our foundation in his life for this. So coming this morning to the tables of communion, it's a natural. Because though we appreciate Abraham's example, Lord, you did something far greater. In fact, while you didn't ask for Abraham's son, you did give your own. In fact, at that very same place, Mount Moriah, that's what it was known to Abraham. Centuries later, you would have your son march down that mountain outside those city gates where he would give his life as a ransom for all who would believe. Truly, Jesus is the greatest of all the faith heroes. He trusted his father. And you promised your son that through his death you would redeem mankind. He followed in obedience and you have done exactly that. We stand as the ones who benefit greatly from your sovereign love, grace, and and plan. From the wisdom of your plan for the ages past in which you are bringing Jew and Gentile together into one body through your Son, Jesus Christ. We stand in awe of that. And this morning, we want to remember that in communion and commit ourselves with our feet firmly on the gospel to fleshing out our faith. To obedience because of confidence. Not in ourselves, but in your promises. So church, would you stand with me, please? Just go when you're ready. No need to rush or hurry. Just go when you're ready. You may want to stay in your seat while the lines are a little long. But there's tables all around the room. If you're a guest, please, we invite you to participate with us if you are a believer. You're confident you've placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation. If that's true, commune with us at the meal, would you? In a minute, we'll have one of our elders come and walk you through the elements together. I just would encourage you, we do this every week, but please, this is not a ritual. It's the weekly spiritual meal which we gather around. Christ is the main menu item, and we share in his flesh and blood symbolically. Church, I pray you'll appreciate and value this communion that we partake every week, this avenue of grace, the special means by which God meets with his people. Oh, Holy Father, work in our midst.